Welcome to the Book Pod, the new fortnightly podcast that brings writers, books and readers together via the digital world. I'm Corrie Perkin and today, episode three, we are travelling to the world of golf. Now, potties, if you don't play golf or if you don't really enjoy watching it on the telly, please don't switch off. My two guests today are so engaging and passionate about this most wonderful of sport, its characters and of course its relationship with nature. Well, they might just inspire you to go and pick up a club and go and have a whack of the little ball. I hope so. Today we welcome golf pro and golf course designer Mike Clayton and one of Australia's finest sports journalists, a former editor, um, sports editor of the age and an old buddy of mine from way back when he was the paper's golf writer, Charlie Happel. Hello, Charlie. Corey, thank you so much for having us. Hello, Mike. Corey, how's it? Um, well, it's good. good. Don't ask about the golf game, though. No. Yeah, well, we heard about your Achilles, so... <laughs> Sadly. I actually haven't admitted to anybody about you're the Achilles, in, but I am strapped up. You're in Tiger Woods. Yeah. <laughs> getting out of a bunker or what? I can't get out of bunkers physically or with the ball, Charlie. You know that. You've obviously heard me moaning about getting out of bunkers. Um, we are today celebrating your new book, guys, Preferred Lies and Other True Golf Stories. It's published by Hardy Grant. It came out a few weeks ago. The two of you have combined all your war stories plus the war stories of a few other famous people. And I have to say that I'm thrilled that we finally in the book world have a really decent local golf book to sell because they are as scarce as hen's teeth. What gave you guys the idea? Corey, that's a bit of a Dor- Dorothy Dixie. You know the answer to that. You were responsible actually. for this book in large part <laughs> by saying to me at a Christmas do a few years ago, why don't you write a golf book? And I said, well, I'm not sure they sell particularly well, do they? And you said, no, given if the content's right and the marketing's done well, that would work. So that was really the genesis of it. Oh, I'm very pleased that you um, listened to me. Were we, we drinking we at should, the time? We should or? acknowledge you, but I don't think we did. Where's the, and with thanks to Corey for the great idea. In all seriousness, uh, we whenever there is a good golf book, a really decent one, certainly the, um, the one my brother did with Peter Thompson a few years ago, that sold like hotcakes. When there is something that's really good, well-written and thoughtful, as your book is, um, you too, it's great, it does sell. And I just wish we would have more of a celebration of the game via the book form. What do you reckon, Mike? Well, there are great golf books in America, all the most of the great golf books come out of America. Tom Callahan, for example, great writer, sports writer, wrote a brilliant book on Arnold Palmer, came out a couple of years ago. So all the, most of the great books come out of America. But Tom Ramsey was the only one in the 70s who did a couple of really good Australian books on golf. And your brother's book with Peter was, I think, one of the great books ever written. Well, it wasn't kind of, it was a kind of, it was a conversation. It was wasn't a conversation it? and a collection of his writing over the years. But that's an amazing book in terms of the wisdom that comes out of those pages. So, so, so Mike, you're, um, I mean, we know Charlie is a beautiful writer and that's been his professional training uh, all his uh, journalistic life. And also you're the author of books as well, Charlie, too. But Mike, you, you're a professional golfer. You now most of your time is spent uh, either coaching and mentoring um, other younger golfers or in fact with your golf course design work. Mm. But years ago, you were offered the gig to write a golf column for the Sunday Age, and it took off. For years, you had a huge fan base. You are a beautiful writer. How did that come about? Well, it's another Dorothy Dix. That was your brother. <laughs> That's his life. That's not mine. Okay. I can't claim that. So I don't know where I met Steve, somewhere, but anyway, I was. he suggested I write a column for the Age, just write something. And I wrote one. My first one was 1990, Royal Melbourne Tournament, and I wrote a column, and... The second one I wrote 
kind of changed my life in a sense. I wrote a scathing article like I would never write now, slagging off Sanctuary Cove as a golf course. We were playing a tournament there and they were promoting it as the hardest course in Australia. And my final line was, well, it might prove to be the hardest course. Well, no one would be fooled into thinking it's one of the greatest. And oh, that would have gone down well with down. the Queensland yeah. Well, I, I was naive enough to think that no one in Queensland is going to read this because it's in Melbourne. <laughs> Pre-internet, yeah. Pre-internet. But John Sloan, who I started the golf course design business with, had taken the job at Sanctuary Cove, or he'd almost he'd agreed to take the job. Wrote me a letter. He said, I read that column. He said, I knew, the, I, I knew you were right. I called him up and told him I wasn't going to come. That kind of led into him having some sort of understanding about what I thought about golf. And then six years later, he and Bruce Grant, Trevor Grant's brother, who the book's dedicated to, rang me and said, we're going to start a golf course design business. Do you want to get involved with it? So but that really all came about. Because the, of that column. The genesis was, was that column I wrote. So Steve, he said, I'll take whatever you write. So I wrote for them for a long time. Professional golfers always have these backstories of they've spent their childhood on the course, usually with a dad or some usually a male mental figure, or in the case of the women, sometimes they're playing with their mums or their grannies. And I always imagine young golfers just spend their entire life on the golf course. But when did you become so good at English? <laughs> so my grandfather wrote books and you know, I just it was the only thing I was half decent at at school. In fact, I remember writing an essay once at school in fourth form and I was kind of a you know 300-word thing, and I thought it was actually pretty good. And the, the only comment the teacher wrote was, is this original? Question mark. I did, it was so dumb, I didn't figure out he was talking about me. He said, there was one essay that came in, there was a perfect punctuation. It was, you know, it was, it was, I was saying, well, you clearly copied it from somewhere. And I was sort of dumb. Like, is he really talking about me? Is he serious? But so that was, that was about the only thing I was ever any good at at school was kind of English and history. That, well, that, that were the only two things I enjoyed. And playing golf. And playing golf, which I started playing because my parents bought a house on the back of Eastern Golf Course, in, which is now a housing estate in Doncaster, and I jumped the fence and started caddying. There's always these stories of kids jumping the fence. Because I wanted and, money. <laughs> and and picking mean, up balls yeah. and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Charlie, what about your golfing past? Um, well, I reckon I started at Barwon Heads um, with one club, a little cut-down driver when I was about six or seven. And my brother had a wooden shafted one and I had the metal shafted driver that was about two feet tall. And that was the club you used to do everything. You chipped and putted and drove with the one club. And um, That's a very good way to learn. It is a good way to learn. And um, so that got me started and sort of been playing – Obviously, my father and mother played and played a lot ever since. Just getting back to Mike's previous point about his column at the Sunday Age, it, it is a kind of a sad indictment that um, that column is no longer going, but also that there are so few golf writers in full like full time golf writers as I was um, in the mainstream media in Australia anymore. The sport has been marginalised um, incredibly, while. We spend a lot more time looking after US sport, NBA, NFL and so forth. Not many papers these days have got golf writers. I think it's you, Mike, actually, that writes a little sort of 150 words on this topic, or it might be you, Charlie, I can't remember. In this book, yeah, yeah, you, you sort of lament the loss of the golf writer. And Charlie, when you were appointed golf writer of the age, that was such a prestigious position. Dare I say most of us who had ever covered sport secretly coveted that role because not only do you get to travel all around the world, but you get to walk around a golf course and say, oh, that was a hard day at work. Absolutely true. And that was the days when the age had a bit of money and could send you to cover tournaments. That obviously doesn't happen these days. In fact, one of the stories we did was about Adam Scott winning the Masters. And that was the first year that Fairfax chose not to send a reporter to cover 
to Augusta. So, of course, they tempted fate in such a blatant way that Scott went out and won. A News Limited was there, but Fairfax wasn't. That's just appalling. Does the Age still publish the club golf? They used to. They still do. Certainly they do. under Randall McDonald's day, in Randall yeah. McDonald's day, when he was managing director, they almost gave a whole page to club golf because he was yeah. such a fanatic. Sort of more local um, pennant golf, for example. All those results used to be in the paper. And now we get, if you look in the five point in the results section, you just get NBA, NFL, all sport has become such a global concern mm. that we've kind of forgotten what's going on in our backyard. It's sad. I wonder whether golf suffers as a result. We might talk about that a bit more. But just uh, just back to the book, what was your feeling about the kind of book that you wanted to create? Because you've divided it up into particular sections um, and even included the caddies, which is great. And they're not just tall stories but true because those are in some way easy books to write because there's so much folklore about the game of golf. Yeah. It really is one of those rare sports. I'm not sure yeah. why. Is it because it's four or five hours that people just have a lot of time to chat and so stories get spread and there's a verbal, um, you know, oh, when this happened to me and that happened to me and there's a, there's a verbal storytelling culture around golf. I don't know. But I think that's a good point. I, I think that's why, why it is that golf is sort of, um, you know, such fertile ground for stories and storytelling is that if you play a round of four and a half or five hours with your mates, there is a lot of dead time and you're walking down the fairway and invariably you start swapping stories that are related to golf. Really, the, in getting the book together, I wanted to tap into Mike's 40 years in the game and the extraordinary stories that never made it into print or across the radio airwaves that... I mean, you could probably have written another hundred if you wanted to. Yeah, there are millions. I mean, there are millions. Millions. Golfers, especially professional golfers, are mostly psychotic. So there are endless stories about the mad things that have happened on the tour. Yeah, so really there's 50 essays in the book and and we really just wanted to write about things that we found entertaining or enjoyable or quirky, sort of subjects that appeal to us. Obviously, Mike is a golf course designer and several of his stories are about course design and what, why a hole works and why a course works and why a course doesn't work. So if you're a golfer, and you said in the, the intro, Corey, that if you're a non-golfer, well, it might be a hard thing to get your head around. If you're a golfer, I think there's plenty here to kind of keep you amused. Well, let's face it. In the last national census, I think they discovered that 1.8 million probably more now, Australians are actually playing golf. And so that means that for all the listeners out there who are listening to this going, I don't play golf, am I going to switch off now? There's a very good chance you know a golfer in your life. And there's a very good chance that they might like this book. It's a very egalitarian sport in Australia, luckily, um, unlike some places in the world where if you drive through a country town, as often as not, there is a golf course and lawn tennis courts. And the golf course might have sand scraped greens, but a lot of people growing up in the country will have played golf. Mm. Yeah. So the book is divided potties into, um, as I said, several chapters or sections with these essays, as Charlie said. So uh, the first one is players and then tours and tournaments and then courses. Caddies, who I think do deserve a big hurrah. Mm -hmm. Part five is called And Another Thing, which is just a bit of shooting the breeze really on a number of topics. Mike Clayton's name appears there quite Mm. a lot. (laughs) Charlie, were you the editor using your former editing skills? Well, I I reckon I can say I got the ball rolling, but we had editors obviously at Hardy Grant and two or three of them who did a great job. Mike and I just got together and worked out the sort of 50 things that at the top of the list of things we wanted to write about. And as I say, I think if, if, if the book sells well, it's the sort of thing you could probably do a second volume of quite easily. Oh, God, I hope so. I hope so indeed. Mike, you mentioned before that sort of <laughs> that moment of that second column that you wrote where you mm. bagged Sanctuary Cove and that was a sort of a turning point. But when did the golf course design bug really bite? 
Well, I was always interested in it because I was always interested in most things that were to do with golf. I grew up watching tournaments on the sandbelt, so I instinctively knew what a great course was. Well, one, my dad told me these courses were great, and I read they were great, and I went and watched them and started to play on them and realized how great they were. But I assume professional golf went to the equivalent courses in Europe and America. I soon realized that professional golf was not about playing on great courses, but playing where the money was. I was interested in it, but never thought about working in it until John rang me and said, you know, here's what we want to do. And so I said, well, it sounds like I was still playing in Europe at the time. As I said, I was interested, but never considered working in the business until we actually started doing it. So one of our mutual friends who plays uh, at our club, Mike, asked me, Fance said, what does a golf course designer look to accomplish? Which I thought, given that you've been doing a bit of work at the club, is probably well, <laughs> could be a contentious yeah, issue. Everything goes back to St Andrews, which is the great original, one of the great original courses in Scotland. What we saw at the Ryder Cup was players being told where to hit the ball by the people who set the golf course up. You must hit it here, otherwise you're done. You're in grass six inches high or the water. Whereas St Andrews, you've got to figure that out for yourself. You've got to work out for yourself where to go, and there are multiple ways to play every shot. The best courses are the ones that are the most interesting to play, that ask the most interesting questions. And St Andrews is the basis of all golf, I think, because it asks the most interesting questions. So that's your holy grail? Yeah. And then Alistair McKenzie, who loves St Andrews, he said, he said St Andrews is the only first-class course. There are no second-class courses, and Cypress Point's a bad third-class. And Cypress Point's like... If it's not the best course in the world, it's one of the best three. So Mackenzie revered St Andrews, thought it was the greatest place ever. And he based Royal Melbourne and Augusta around the principles. Even though they look completely different to St Andrews, he based those courses around the principles he, he understood at St Andrews. So he's your inspiration? Why, yeah, yeah partly. But, but he was, well, I, I, think, I think if he was here, he would say St Andrews was his inspiration. So I think St Andrews is the inspiration for all great golf courses I'm because the people who understand that, understand the, the, how that course asks such interesting questions and they can, they can replicate those questions on pieces of land that are wildly different. And so when you're designing a golf course in Victoria compared with Queensland, you're obviously taking in the local terrain. Yeah. Fauna, flora, all of that sort of thing. Yeah, but the principles don't change. But, yeah, certainly flora and fauna. In fact, they open a bunch of holes on the, the course. We've just redesigned a peninsula. And that's, I think, that that's what the sandbelt should have been. It's indigenous coastal manor gums and heathland. And, of course, the sandbelt was all planted out with European trees and native trees, which didn't belong either. So it's a peninsula is the best example in Australia of a, of a natural golf course because it's the only course in Australia that's or one of the very few, where the vegetation is faithful to what was growing there before the golf course was there. My brother said I should just drop in at this point that your nickname is Chainsaw Mike, but I'm not going to do that. Well, (laughs) the people that that call me that never seem to see the trees we plant. I should should say at this point, Mike, you and I played in in a sort of media day at Long Island about a year or two ago. And a member had obviously seen Mike pull in in his car. So when we packed our clubs away at the end of the day, this guy had put a note under Mike's windscreen saying, get your bloody hands off our course, Clayton. And he had, you know, <laughs> Mike was there going for a social game. Yeah. So his reputation yeah. precedes him. Anyway, there's an essay on trees in the book, but, you know, it's a contentious issue that my, my view is that people don't understand, have no clue about the proper role of trees in golf in terms of how they impact the strategy. Again, it's a bigger question, but it's about, what Australia did to the environment. We imported all the rabbits and cane toads and kaikuya and carp and all the things we did to change the environment in Australia. None of them worked out particularly well. And golf was the same. Golf imported 
understandably, people wanted to make it feel like England or where they'd come from. So they imported European trees and tried to alter the environment. So do I assume here that St Andrews is your favourite golf course in the world? Uh, yeah, probably, yeah. And yeah, Charlie, what yeah. about you? Um, I'd say the same. Yeah. Have I'm you look, played there, Charlie? I have. I'm Look, I'm lucky enough to be a member, believe it or not, and uh, I've, I've played there a bit, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So what does one have to do to have a game with you, Charlie? Come um, on, bottles of wine coming your way. Put me on, a, pod, put me on a podcast, <laughs> yeah. that'll, that'll do. In answer to your question, Corey, I think you, you'd like to make courses playable, don't you, and not penal for the, for the average sort of mid Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think Royal Melbourne is the best course in Australia, by, not by some way now, but it's certainly the best course. And of, of the best 50 courses in Australia, it's probably the easiest, unless you play in a tournament where the greens are like this table, but... Now, if you go and play that today, it's, it's arguably the easiest. It's, it's certainly the easiest course for a bogey player to shoot 90 on, which was my criticism of Sanctuary Cove was that the better you were as a player, the easier the course got. The worse you were as a player, the harder it got. Mm. Whereas Royal Melbourne, the better you are, the harder it gets. The worse you are, the easier it gets because you can plot your way around. There's plenty of space to plot your way around. Well, that's very good to know because Linny Swinburne, who was on our podcast not mm. long ago with Caro and myself, she, uh, as we know, is president of Royal Melbourne, yes. and she invited me to be her guest at Guest Day in a couple of weeks, which Good. is why the pressure's on for the Achilles to fix itself, Charlie. So, so how many times, how many games have you played at Royal Melbourne? I've only ever played once. Oh, God. Guys, there are so many um, Australian golfing heroes over uh, the journey, and it's lovely to see that you pay tribute not just to the current crop of, of Adams and Jasons and all of that, but also there is a chapter on Kari Webb who is... Uh, a huge sporting hero for, well, all Australians, but particularly Australian women because of her international success over a long period. And also Peter Thompson um, and Greg Norman. Uh, what are your thoughts, are just off topic slightly, of, of Greg Norman posing nude a couple of weeks ago in an American magazine? Good call, bad call? Oh, I think we'd be agreed on that, wouldn't we? Bad call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just being a dick, right? <laughs> Why? Why? That is why, why would why? you do why? it? Nick Faldo tweeted one word. He said, why? Yeah. Well, why? As, as, as our golfing gang, because we're on a bit of a WhatsApp group, we were just going, why would you do it? Why, why? He's got all the money in the world and he has celebrities. Well, he's and, obviously. And then someone said ego. Terribly not a vain, vain and he, he's got a huge ego and he's kept himself in awfully good nick. And I was going to say, not a, bad, not a bad bod. Yeah. yeah, good nick. And he's, what is he, is he 58? 60, no, 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 he's older than me. 62, he's older than me, 63. Oh, Mike, there's hope for you. You could do it. Yeah, I, can, <laughs> I can go to the gym for you and look like Greg. Yeah, but... um. And he's just probably telling everyone that he's still around and he's still healthy. And and he, he came out this week and he ignited the war he has with Tiger because they haven't spoken to each other for years. Don't get on. And, you know, Greg had another slap at Tiger. Golf doesn't need to go back to the trap of being enraptured by Tiger Woods and forgetting about all the other players. And then and then Greg puts himself as a centrefold. Mm, like that. Yeah. 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 It's all about yeah. me. It's, it's all fantastic. About me. Anyway. But you guys in your book, you, you it's not just essays by both of you. You've you've mined other people for ideas and, and, and thoughts and collections, and uh, including Tiger Woods' most famous caddy. Yeah. Whose name escapes me? Steve Williams. Williams. Steve, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So you've so you've turned to a few other bods for some inspiration. We thought we thought people might get bored of Mike and I banging on, so we got um, eight or ten other people to chime in with essays. And Steve Williams, as you say, has done an essay on Tiger, and also one on sort of the art of caddying. Both of which are which I just loved. Yeah. Yeah, because the ca the caddy has. I mean, the caddy, of course, has an important role, but it's a it's a funny role. It's a peculiar relationship, isn't it? How do you say to Tiger Woods, "No, I don't agree with that decision to use that nine iron"? Or um, let me tell you, the, Steve let me tell you the, 
Let me tell you the best story about Steve Williams and Tiger Woods. On the last hole at Torrey Pines in the famous US Open, he won with the broken leg. He came to the last hole and he was in the rough, 100 yards or so off the green, and he needed to get up and down to tie Rocco Mediate. Say he had 100 yards, and Steve said, if, I knew if I told him it was 100 yards, he'd try and hit the sand wedge, and that was too much club. It would come out and it would run to the back of the green. So I lied to him and told him it was 94 yards because then I knew he would use the lob wedge and smash it because that was the right shot. So on the last hole of the US Open, he told the, arguably the greatest player ever, he gave him the wrong yardage by about eight yards to make him hit the club that he wouldn't have hit if he'd given him the right yardage. Yeah. That's a ballsy call it's in the last hole of the US Open. He does talk about stepping in when, when he was starting out and catting for Greg Norman. Greg needed a par down of down a par five in Queensland to win the. You oh, remember this? Palmetto, right? Palmetto, Palmetto, and there's water on the right. And Greg, of course, full of adrenaline, has taken out the driver and thinking about his next nude centrefold. Yeah. Well, well, thinking about a birdie, probably he didn't need a birdie. No, he needed a par. par and so Steve, I think, has either grabbed the club or I think just stood in between the um, Greg and the where he was about to play a shot with a three iron, and there was a bit of a stare off. And then eventually, Greg played the three iron. Steve got the bag and moved off the tee, and of course he got his five. He got his five and won the tournament. But so Steve said he got a lot of confidence out of that, being able to stand up to a forceful personality like Norman. And I think Norman also trusted Williams that he'd make yeah. the right call under pressure. But then he fired him stupidly. <laughs> and about two months later, they, they came to the famous Open at Troon, nineteen eighty nine. So Greg birdies the first two holes in the play. Wayne Grady, Mark Kalkovecki. Greg birdies the first two holes. And he hit a beautiful shot to the 17th, the hardest part three in, in England or Britain, just over the back of the green in the rough. And Steve was then came for Ray Floyd. And he was just in this sort of muffy, sort of wispy rough at the back of the green. And Steve was watching in the locker room. He said, watch this, he said. He said, he'll take out an eight iron and he'll chip this 10 feet past. You watch. And Greg got the putter out and he had a few practice swings with the putter, put the putter back in the bag, took the eight iron out and chipped it 10 feet past. Exactly. Missed the putt, lost the playoff. And if Steve had been caddying for him, he, he wouldn't have, have done he that. Said, There's the putter and walked off. Mm. The, and, the, the caddy stories are yeah, among my favourite yeah, in the book. Yeah. Did you like the Tim Lane story? Yes. Caddying for Vaughan Summers. I did. I love that. Tell that just quickly. Oh, well, Tim um, was obviously working for the ABC in the late 80s and they lost the rights to cover the v- VFL slash AFL. So he found himself at a loose end in the winter of 1988. And he'd got to know Vaughan Summers, a Queensland pro, quite well um, when the ABC covered the golf. And Vaughan knew he was at a loose end and said, why don't you come and caddy for me on the European tour for four or five months? Tim said, sounds like a bit of fun. I'll do it. He's written actually columns in the Sunday Age about the trials and tribulations of a caddy and kind of the, you need to have a a major in psychology. You need the skin of a rhinoceros. You need the motivational powers of Winston Churchill. You need all this stuff wrapped up in uh, a bag carrier. Anyway, they were trying to qualify for the British Open and um, Vaughan had played a very good first round and was playing really well early in the second round. And Tim sensed he was getting a bit ahead of himself because he was kind of walking down the fairways, almost clicking his heels mm, going. A bit of a strut happening. Eight life grand. And Tim was thinking, now, should I butt in and say something or not? And eventually thought, yep, I do. This is my job. He said, uh, have you heard about the poem If by Rudyard Kipling? You know, if you can treat the twin imposters of <laughs> triumph and disaster equally, the you'll be a man, my son, or however it goes. And Vaughan said, what do you mean? And Tim said, look, I'm just saying you've got 16 holes to go. Why don't you just don't get ahead of yourself? <laughs> and Vaughan sort of gone, hmm. And Tim sensed immediately deflated him. And, of course, Vaughan has three-putted the next hole, then three-putted the next, then bogeyed the fifth. And he hur- as he walked off the fifth, he hurled his putter at Tim's feet and said, got any more effing advice, Rudyard? 
who might have been the most tricky boat to cave for in the history of golf. I love, I love that story. Yeah. I can see Tim, will I, won't I, will yeah. I, won't I. And word perfect too on Rudyard. <laughs> Do each of you have a favourite story from the book? I like um, Mike's ad- opening story on Adam Scott and mm. playing with him as a, what was it, 18-year-old, Mike? In, yeah, it was 18 or 19. Yeah. Mm. And you yeah. could, you could just Cranbourne, sense and it. And you see thought it. he had a, had a terrible first he hole. He played the first hole like a complete... Yeah, and you were all saying, what, who uh, is this kid? I guess he's What's not, all the fuss about? Well, on the first day, Mark Allen had said to me, who is this kid? Wait, and he said, have you heard of this kid? I said, oh, I saw his picture in a golf magazine. I think he's pretty good. And he played the first hole like the worst play I've ever seen. I mean, just a massive snap hook off the tee into the left trees. And, and he smashed a drive down the second and hit a wedge to a foot. And he, he, we buried the next five holes. And I remember walking to the seventh tee and I said, how good is this kid? It was obvious. You know, you see someone very rarely that you can tell after so you know six holes that this kid's going to be a superstar. But you set up that scene so well of, you know, that you two sort of older grizzly bears. Yeah. You know, like, oh, who is this young kid? This young kid yeah. stuffed up the first couple of holes. Yeah. And yeah. what's your favourite story, Mike, in the book? Well, I liked Andrew Thompson's story on golf in Japan. Andrew yeah. Peter's son, who married to a Japanese who spends a lot of time in Japan. And, and he, as a former, he was a former Liberal minister, I think, with the state for government. tourism, yeah. yeah. No, for the federal, federal government. Oh, federal. Right. In fact, federal whose seat did he have? He have Wentworth. He Wentworth. Had, he had yeah. Turnbull's seat. Yeah. Yeah. So golf in Japan is a fascinating ritual of day long, mm. picking up, driving to the golf course, playing nine holes, long lunch. lunch. But in the middle of the front nine, you break for tea and sushi in the halfway house, and well, the, well, the, th- the third way house, then you have lunch and then you go and play the back nine then you get in the big bath the communal and bath it's an all-day affair in japan and it's a i mean golf in japan is 18 holes it's not running out to the club at 4 30 at night and playing for three or four holes after work it's golf is an 18 hole game in japan in fact the japan opens on like this every, week it's a ceremony like every it is a ceremony exactly. it's a, yeah, it's and a, a ritual yeah we've got a couple of listener questions penny from richmond asks if you had to name just one what do you think is the biggest future challenge facing golf clubs in Australia? Uh, relevance, probably. Well, in, in Melbourne, Kingswood merged with Peninsula, so we were lucky enough to get to use the money to rebuild Peninsula. And there's a massive fighting Dingley village about the future of that golf club, but that was the 12th best course within a 20-minute drive of Royal Melbourne. So when you say relevance, you, you think Australians are uh, well, looking to other pleasures? Well, well, I think that the club, at a time when fewer and fewer people are joining clubs, and there are so many suburban clubs, is how do they stay relevant and survive? And some like Eastern will sell up and become a housing estate and move to a new site. Others like Point Lonsdale, where we're rebuilding the golf course at Point Lonsdale, they sold four holes and that was worth, I think, $40 million worth of real estate. So, so they're kind of rebuilding. They bought some farmland next door and, and they're rebuilding the golf course. Others like Kingswood sell up and merge with Peninsula. The state governments are trying to take away public golf courses to use them as other recreations. So, so golf, you know, it's about how, how relevant golf courses are, and it's about what and, and fighting off land value yeah, and, and competition. Up. So, so it's what are struggling clubs do? Do they do they struggle on? Do they sell up and merge? Do they sell up and go somewhere else? Do they just walk off the site and grow weeds on it like Geelong Golf Club did? You know, they've got to remain so relevant. That's to the young, big young people. Yeah, yeah. Is that the biggest challenge you see, Charlie? I, I do. Yeah, they, and. And I think the figures show that there aren't as many young people playing the game as there was t- 25 years ago or 20 years ago. And what I think, do you put that down Oh, to? well, I think there's a the private clubs had a reputation of being stuffy and of insisting on these quite sort of um, archaic uh, dress regulations and things with, you know, knee-high socks and... Oh, you're preaching to the converted here, yeah. Charlie. shorts. Yeah. Yes, you don't want people... Playing golf, golf, clo- in, golf clothing is my yeah. favourite topic. In thongs and, you know, um, collarless shirts. It, it, there's to be a happy medium there. But I think 
they've got to become more approachable and more um, user-friendly for young people. And golf's a hard game. It's hard. Mm. And I think one theory is that kids are so used to being good at things quickly now. Computer games, among things that kids do, they're good at. That's interesting. But golf's hard. Golf takes a long time to get proficient and good. Oh, I can testify to that. So if you're not prepared to grind through that. stuck in a bunker 10 shots later. You said you were going to help me with my bunker well, we, shots. We need to go and play and sort it out. But I played with well, Slattery, who who was on the who was on Jeff Slattery was on. Don't on, shoot the messenger yeah, podcast messenger. a few weeks ago. We played on Saturday with Peter Hurst, who's an eighty-year-old who can't play. Lovely guy, cannot play at all anymore. Hope he's listening. It was the three worst performances of bunker play I've ever seen. It was just horrific. And the sand belt in Melbourne is is hard because it's. I mean, I I didn't think of, and so I started playing with Sue's sister who just joined Metro and started playing. 20- Suo, who's our young Australian Suo's, champion. Yeah, okay, for in the Olympic Games, there's an essay on that in the book. Her sister just took up golf and she plays. And she, you don't realise how much bunkers on the sandbelt impose their way into the game because they're the primary defence of what a great championship course is. But she started out in golf and if the bunkers were green, she had 18 greens around. She's in the bunker in every hole. And she's actually getting pretty decent at it. But you realise when beginners get in bunkers how difficult they are to play from and how much effort it takes to learn how to get out of them without embarrassing yourself, Scar- which is kind of the – I mean, just let me get out. Scary as. Yeah, yeah that's hard. Um, and that's a little segue to another question from Jill Edney, who is the author of a wonderful new book that's coming out in a few weeks on Brian Twight, who is the uh, he's 90-something-year-old 90, – 92-year-old pro at Still Metro, a pro yeah. at Metropolitan Golf Club. And, uh, in fact, Jill and Brian and I had a lovely nine holes a few weeks ago before the Achilles accident, and Brian gave me lots of tips on how to get out of bunkers. I didn't really do him proud, but we had a lovely – that was just one of life's great moments for, to have him sharing his knowledge. But Jill asked of both of you your most cherished golf memory that you have, and it could be either as a player or a writer or even as a caddy or in Mike's case, a golf course designer. So what's your most cherished memory? At the top of my head, I'd say as a journalist, covering the first major I got sent to by the age was the 1996 US Masters. And I was just in awe of this place that I'd heard so much about and made a point of walking the course every day and drinking it all in. And of course, that was the tournament that Greg Norman led by six shots after three rounds. And I can hear the groan of golf fans around Australia in mentioning this now. And ended up losing by five shots. So I kind of I felt like I was there at watching a bit of history. Very sad, I remember sad getting up on that Monday, was yeah. it Monday morning. Monday Aussie morning, time? Yeah. Uh, yeah, just yeah. <laughs> watching him implode. Where's the whiskey? <laughs> yeah. It was terrible. Yeah, so I'd say that was the most, perhaps not cherished, but most memorable. And what about you, Mike? Oh, too many. Um, yeah, well, I won the Vic Open once when I was just starting out. I made two holes in one in a week and won the Vic Open and made forty thousand bought a house. So. Uh, that was, a, I was unbelievably lucky to be able to do that in a it's week. It's a pretty cherished was, memory. Two holes in one. In a way, yeah, I made 5000 in Tasmania. Last time in Tasmania, I made 5000 bucks. I played terribly all week. I got this little swing thought on about the 15th hole, and I, it, every hole I just rifled it. And I got in the last hole, four on, straight in, hole in one, five grand. thought it was a fortune. It was a fortune then. <laughs> it was a fortune. So, uh, we, so when you're a pro and you get a hole in one, do you have to shout the bar like you do no, if you're a normal person? No, no, no. And then I went to the next week and made a hole in one on the 13th hole at Metro and won 20,000. I mean, I think playing golf with Seve Ballesteros was a thrill watching, you know, as a kid watching Peter Thompson play. I guess designing Rand Furley was the first golf course we designed, new course. That was kind of, that's a pretty cool memory of doing that. So, yeah, lots of, you know, golf's an amazing 
sport in terms of the memories it can give and the places you go and the places you see and the people you meet. And, you know, I've met people that, you know, who in a hundred years' time will be considered the greatest court designers in the world. You know, guys like Bill Corr and Tom Doak and Gil Hans, who are kind of the modern day Alistair McKenzie's and Donald Rosses, who are the who are legends of the twenties and thirties, who transformed the game really. So, you meet so many interesting people. In- I get a feeling there are a few more books in you, Mike Clayton. So <laughs> you've also yeah. got a memory like an elephant. Yeah. <laughs> but all go- a lot of good golfers do. They can go, oh yeah, the sixteenth at Metro or the sixteenth at. Yeah you know, Woodlands or wherever it might be, and that shot I, I did in 2007. And yeah. I was talking to someone the other day, I was saying, well, yeah, the 16th at Colmoth, and they, they're going, what's the 16th? And I was like, well, you really don't know the 16th? Come on. I mean, so, yeah, so I, I assume people know a lot of things that they should, I think they should know that they don't, but anyway. But you can remember shots you, you've hit 40 years ago, presumably, and, and the club you took in certain situations. Yeah, but, but most golfers can. Well, that was the famous story about Kim Baker, the photographer, who went to, to Birkdale, photographed Peter Thompson on the 15th, the 14th tee, the par three, with the 50th anniversary of his win at Birkdale. And he said, Peter, can you still see the shot? He said, I can still feel it. Oh, you know? that's great. Yeah, which is, you know, and I can still feel swings that I made, mostly bad ones. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I can. We can. We can. I feel, I feel your pain. Exactly. Golf, golf leaves lots of scars. Oh, it does, especially if you're stuck in a bunker and it's the tenth yeah. shot and it's yeah. you know stroke. You're, you're playing a stroke <laughs> event, exactly. Yeah. So, guys, six quick questions. This is an element of uh, our "Don't Shoot the Messenger" podcast, which Caro and I do each week, and we love it because we just pick these random questions and and you know, which has nothing to do with topic really, but they're always fun. So my first question is to you, Charlie. What was your favourite book or book series when you were a little kid? Um, I thought about this, and Dr Seuss played a large part in my childhood, certainly, but I reckon the Beatrix Potter books were the ones that I... Oh, really? Yes, yeah. and I Flopsy bunnies. And... Yeah, the image of Farmer McGregor chasing Peter through the carrot patch or whatever it was with his hoe, that was... I've lived with me for a long time, yeah. <laughs> There were no golf sticks in that, were there? No, go- no, no golf courses? None. none. <laughs> Lots of rabbits on golf courses these days. And, Mike, what was your favourite book or book series? I remember my mother buying me, I don't know why, a series of books on composers, which I was obsessed with, Schubert and Brahms. You and are Mozart, such an evolved which was man. Such a, which was such a, <laughs> I read and read, read and read and reread these books and knew them off, but I was just... The most interesting one, I think, was Chopin, who had the, you know illicit affair with Georges Sand for so many years. I had a book on Chopin I was yeah. obsessed with. And, what a peculiar thing for you to that remember. That is peculiar, <laughs> but not surprising. No. Yeah. So, it says yeah, a lot, doesn't yeah. it, Charlie? Yeah, well, it says a lot about my mother. She was buying me books on Schubert when I was like, who, who died of an ear disease, I think, didn't he? Didn't yeah, so anyway. Charlie, if you had to name just three, who are your favourite fiction writers? Okay. Um, look, there I go. Because I could have done the obvious and said journalists or something, but let's just get no, no, no. Fiction's into good. Fiction. Fiction's good. There are two books I go back to all the time, and they sit by my bed, sort of well thumbed, and that is Damon Runyon on Broadway, P.G. Woodhouse and the, the Jeeves and Worcester series. Oh, that's good comfort for a food. La- for a laugh, I think. Yeah, exactly. And both oddly written, sort of between the wars. So, but obviously either side of the Atlantic. And the best book I've read recently is Wolf Hall by um, Hilary Mantel. Yeah, which recent, I love. well, it's been out for about nine six, years. But six, I was going to say, is it? Yeah. Oh. It won a book, a man Booker Prize, mm. and then she did a second one, Bring Up the Bring Bodies, Bodies, and that also won a man Booker. Didn't like it as Booker. much, but yeah. So the third one we're waiting for, where Thomas Cromwell gets that, it's the chopper, you know, gets yeah. the chop. So yeah. that's due yeah. in 2019. So you can look forward to did that. Did you love Wolf Hall though? I loved Wolf Hall. Yeah. But the thing about Wolf Hall, which I always say to people in the shop, is read it on a holiday. Don't like. Yeah. 
people think holiday read, beach read, something easy. I always think if you're on holiday, that's when you really get into a book. And this is a book that you need to immerse yourself in. But it's one of the best books about politics I've ever read. Hey, Mike, um, is there one golf pro alive or no longer alive who you would most love to have played a round of golf with and you didn't? Well, there are too many. Um, One, please. I would think think young Tom Morris, who was the great player of the 1860s, won three Opens in a row. Father was old Tom. Didn't they make a movie about him? They did. Great movie. His wife died in childbirth and he rushed back from a match at Presswick to be there and he finished up dying. They say he died of alcoholism and they're not quite sure what he died of, but 24 years old. And he, you know, he eagled the first hole at Presswick 570 yards in, in an open and he was the first kind of great player really. So, you know, people say athletes are so much better and golfers are so much better. I mean, I think Peter Ellis makes an argument. They were the most skillful players because they were playing with the worst equipment. They were playing with rudimentary, really lousy golf balls and terribly difficult clubs. And they didn't use. have six pairs of gloves. Yeah. If it rained, they yeah. could change. Or, yeah. or fact, those little, what I love, the pocket warmers. Yeah, yeah. So I would think, <laughs> Which yeah, melt your lipstick. It would be pretty cool to play with young Tom Morris. Mm. Charlie, just on the topic of movies, what's your favourite sports-related movie? Um, I liked Moneyball a lot. Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. So Brad Pitt as Billy Bean, the Oakland A's manager, who kind of worked away how to outsmart the richer clubs mm. um, by using sort of data and analytics and not the traditional means. And it was a really clever movie, I think, based on the Michael Lewis book. And Mike, again, to bring up my brother, we were years ago I wrote a column about funny things that happen on golf courses and my brother reminded me of his time, I think he was on the 14th at Vic, Victoria Golf Club, and he hit down the fairway and a black cat came out and picked up his ball and walked off. <laughs> so I just wondered what are some of the most bizarre or what is the most bizarre thing that you've ever witnessed on a golf course <laughs> relating particularly to perhaps the natural world, like me killing a pigeon. I was so shocked, oh, which suggests what a bad shot it was because it skimmed along the ground <laughs> toward a flock of pigeons. <laughs> and my partner who I was playing with, Liz, as we walked up, she said, I think you've killed it. I went, oh, no, I think it's just stunned. What's well, you off your game, Charlie? Yeah, I know. Well, poor about poor Brooks Kepka who hit that woman in the eye oh, at the Ryder Cup yeah, and blinded her. That was so sad. And terrible. Um, Reminded of Mark James, who was a terrific English player, playing the British Senior Open this year. Drove off the seven at St Andrews, which is the hardest driving hole in the world. You drive past the horrible hotel there that Herb Kohler owns. Mid-flight, perfect drive, hit a bird, killed the bird, and the ball went out of bounds. Ball went over the into the hotel, which is like, I mean, so many bizarre things happen in golf. Crows pick up the balls at Bamboogle early in they the morning. Do. And I was playing with a friend of mine who was using a lousy golf ball and I was using a brand new Pro V Titleist and he hit first and the crow came down and picked his ball up and kind of trotted around with the ball and it's beak about to fly off and I hit and it walked, it, <laughs> he trotted over to my ball, dropped the lousy ball and picked mine up and flew off with that. I'd rather the so, Mercedes, thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, there are too many bizarre stories. In, you could sit here all day talking well, about bizarre look, stories in golf. There are some bizarre stories, but some also very thoughtful and poignant and very uh, perceptive uh, commentary in this great book of Charlie Happels and Mike Clayton. It's called Preferred Lies and Other True Golf Stories. I recommend it, Potties, if you're not into golf, as I said earlier, you must know somebody who loves golf. And I think this is a fabulous birthday and Christmas present. And we are coming up to that time of year. So we'll have some signed copies of this um, by uh, Charlie and Mike will do us a favor. And if you'd like to secure a copy, you can certainly through our show notes in the pod or uh, through the podcast app. 
uh, and you can use the promo code BOOKPOD to receive your signed copy while stocks last. But I'm sure we can get, if we run out of stock, I'm sure we can get Mike and um, Charlie to sign a few more copies. Guys, thank you very much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Corey. Thank you so much, Corey. I hope you can uh, take me out and help me with the we bunker can, I'll, I'll, I'll fix your bunker shots up. <laughs> we, we take you out with Sue's sister and you, we can struggle our way together. Oh, I just bunkers. don't think I'll be playing with Sue's sister. No, no, <laughs> she's, Sue, if she's Sue, anything Sue, like a sister. No, Sue's sister's a – she's not breaking 100 yet either. Do you know that is the scariest thought ever? Playing a game – if I put my name down and one of the pennant girls puts their no, name down, can you imagine I go into a fluster? I no can't one, sleep the no night one before. Cares. No, no one cares. People say no that, Mike. No one cares. No one cares. There's always someone worse than you are, and there's always someone better. So, Charlie, I think we we'll have to have a game of golf soon. I'd love to do Maybe that. Maybe with correct. Mike, that'd be great. In fact, if they do care, you don't want to be playing with them anyway, because they're probably miserable. <laughs> don't play stroke with them. Just play stable play foot apart, and then you can pick it up. If yeah, you that's exactly. Oh, stroke is too terrible. The worst thing about playing golf is people count. Golf is not about forget about scoring. Just go play golf. Mm. Oh, Hit the it's ball. Very hard. Yeah, easy to say when you're you. Okay, easy yeah, well, to say. Well, no, don't get obsessed with scoring. And just keep planting trees, Mike. That's yeah. my message. My yeah. parting message: trees, trees, For, trees. In, indigenous trees away from the golf. Absolutely. I'm all for that. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, Corey. Thanks to Charlie Happel and Mike Clayton there. I've learned a lot about golf. Miss Jane, have you? You ready to take up the clubs? I've always wanted to play golf, Corey, but I think after that conversation, I am more ready than ever to have a crack. Well, the other good thing is that sitting around in the clubhouse having a gin and tonic listening to people like those two talk is quite fun as well. Well, look, anywhere you get beautiful scenery, some outdoor time and some exercise. I've I've played a few games in my time. Can't say oh. I'm a very good shot, but there's a few years to work on that oh, one. Oh, it is a lot of fun. And my mother told me once you should take up golf by the time you're 40. And I'm still trying to take it up all these years later. Anyway, uh, thank you to everybody who has given us such fabulous feedback here on the book pod. We are so appreciative. Jane, we've had lots of bouquets, which has been humbling and cheering to the soul. I'm so glad we're doing a new podcast and there are people actually listening out there. Just one I wanted to mention um, before. I know you've got a list, Jane, but Sarah Coles on our Instagram account, which is the book pod, she said, so excited about this new podcast, fabulous interview with Leanne Moriarty. Uh, have have not read any of the books, but I'm inspired to now. I love Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast as well, and this is fast becoming my favourite. And she says, congratulations. So that was really lovely to hear uh, her words. And I was actually really excited when we got a little tweet from Claire Fuller, the author. Of course, you mentioned uh, OMG, the, yes, famous author. The Laura Tingle episode, you uh, did the plug for Bitter Orange by Claire Fuller. And she actually tweeted us and said, thanks so much for the plug for Bitter Orange. Great podcast, by the way. So good to hear we've got some uh, readers and also some authors listening as well, Corrie. International authors, Jane. <laughs> From England, Jane. That makes me feel good. And we also have to say hello to Prue at Prue Dinks on Twitter who said of Laura Tingle's essay, can't wait, mine's in the mail. And, of course, if you want to order yourself a copy, you can always uh, jump into the show notes of this episode, which is in your podcast app, and you'll find all the links and the details there. Well, I really ask everybody to give us lots of feedback, good and bad. We don't just want bouquets, although they're really nice to have. But don't forget, you can uh, join us on our Instagram account, which is called The Book Pod, and you can leave a message there. Or on Facebook through the Don't Shoot the Messenger uh, page, you can leave a little message there. Or contact us on our email address, which is jane, feedback at thebookpod.com.au. 
Just to plug our next episode of the book pod, we'll be joined by Dr. Claire Wright, who has written a magnificent new uh, historical uh, study called You Daughters of Freedom. And this looks at the Australians who won the vote and inspired the world. It's a wonderful book, uh, which I suggest everybody has a look at. It will be I'm sure, Jane, on all of those long list and short list prizes awards in the new year. And Claire's a terrific talent. Uh, she's an eminent historian and she's a broadcaster and uh, a really good girl. And we're looking forward to having her with us. We're also going to be joined in the next few weeks by Dr. Anne Summers, who's coming back to Australia to do a tour to talk about her new autobiography. Jane Harper, who, of course, wrote that wonderful novel, The Dry. Marcus Suzak, that is royalty, Jane. We're very excited about Marcus Suzak. Absolutely. So Marcus Suzak wrote the book Thief and his new novel Bridge of Clay. I just finished on the weekend. It is outstanding. So lots coming up in the book pod. We've got a book to plug, Jane. Now, who do you think, which book has received more publicity in the past week than any other book that you can think of? Non-fiction, I'll give you that hint. You're the expert, Cory. I have no idea. <laughs> That's why I listen to this podcast. <laughs> well, I know that you're a bit of a Chats 10 Look 3 girl, as am oh. I. I would like to suggest that everybody has a look at Lee Sale's new book, Any Ordinary Day. Now, there's been a lot of coverage about Lee's book, Jane. I'm sure you've read various, including that wonderful um, profile that, or story that was written on the cover of the Good Weekend magazine a week or two back. But Lee Sale's new book looks at what happens to ordinary people when extraordinary and terrible things happen to them. And she also weaves a bit of her own self into this story because she has in recent years had a terribly traumatic time herself with a series of disasters and things that just change your day when the unexpected happens. She writes it in a way, Jane, like Helen Garner's nonfiction, uh, the way Helen Garner will often step into the story and take it further, but is also able to be the impartial observer. So I think Lee's done a tremendous uh, work with this book. She is a Walkley Award-winning journalist, of course. But um, that's our that, that's our plug for today, Any Ordinary Day by Lee Sales. And, of course, Corrie, we need to encourage everyone to read Home Fire by Camilla Shamsi. That is our book club book. We're going to attempt a little bit of a podcast book club in the next uh, few weeks. So read that one. And you can be part of the conversation. I think we're going to try and get Caroline Wilson on board for that one, aren't we? We are indeed. Caro's read the book and she loved it. But Jane, I sometimes think you get a bit twitchy when we mention having this on-air book club because it might mean extra special talents in the panel operating area. But we do want potties to – you can record a message and send it through your iPhone. And don't we don't need a dissertation of, you know, an hour and a half on the book. But just 100 or 200 words, just tell us what you thought of – Home Fire by Camilla Shamsi. We really want to engage everybody into our online book club or our podcast book club. So join in. And how can people do that, Jane? Well, on any of the social media channels that we have mentioned so far, the Instagram, the Twitter, and the Don't Shoot the Messenger Facebook, or you can record that little voice memo on your phone and email it to feedback at thebookpod.com.au. And that's the end of another episode. What fun we're having, Jane. Thank you very much for being such a wonderful producer. And I'd like to thank our guests today, Mike Clayton and Charlie Happel, uh, for talking about their book, Preferred Lies. Not just a golf book, everyone. It is hilarious and interesting and informative as well. And also their publishers, Hardy Grant, for having the vision to produce this wonderful book, which is a celebration of international and Australian golf. And everybody, happy reading. <laughs>